This week, many Americans are celebrating what would have been the 95th birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a paragon of nonviolent resistance as a mean for achieving human progress. Sadly, his dream of for America is betrayed by our contemporary politics, especially in education, especially in issues that are so basic as whether or not we should provide our young people with food at school. We're going to talk about it on today's Citizen Stewards show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspective about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, chief influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South Robbie, how you doing? Can't complain. Just got back to the U.S. a couple of days ago and ready to rock and roll. <laughs> I could give your intro for me, you for you each week without even knowing what you did that week. Uh, well, you know, I was up in Mount Everest, you know, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wrote a book yeah. uh, in this last week and I put a book out. Yeah. And I was hanging out with Obama. Yeah. How you guys That's doing? Right. <laughs> That's right. So what's news this week at the top of the hour, at the top of our time together today? What's news this week that you think is important? Well, I wanted to talk about, I lost two people over the past few weeks that were sort of integral to my journey as an educator. One is my former middle school principal who just died two nights ago. Uh, this guy, Arnold Raffone, who is my school principal in Staten Island, who actually is my cousin, my mom's first cousin. Mm. He passed away and I actually saw him for the first time in like 20 years, just a few months ago. And he was like blown away that I became a middle school principal. You know, he, he had kind of been following me from afar. And then Linda Brown passed away a few weeks ago, who is the founder and former leader of Building Excellent Schools, which I think is called something else now. But uh, when she ran it for so many years, it was one of the most important education organizations in the country. It went on to found uh, dozens of really, really high-performing schools around the country, including Achievement Prep and um, the United Schools Network and University Prep and the Rhode Island Mayoral Academies and Excel Academy in Boston. I mean, you can just go down the list. There's just so many amazing schools. And, you know, that was the fellowship I did uh, to become a school leader. And she was just a really special woman. And Richard Whitmire wrote a really good sort of tribute to her in the, in the 74 which is peppered with anecdotes that really, you know, was what made her special. She used to tape to the windows of the offices that they had in Boston with orange paper, urgent or urgency. And she just would constantly remind us that the work we were doing is the most important work in the world. And she flew out to Nashville on the first day of school for Nashville prep <clears throat> and stood there alongside me, even though she, she, even back then she had really bad scoliosis. It was hard for her to walk, but she insisted on standing as I greeted every student who walked through those doors. She was just a really special woman. And so we'll, we'll definitely miss her. And, you know, it was like, there's just no place. Cause we're not, we're not the, you know, we're not the NFL, right? We don't really, even though she was inducted into the hall of fame for the national charter schools association, there's not the same kind of reverence that we bring when we're like, Oh, this is Scott given, or this is Linda Brown, or this is Chantel Wright. These people who had started amazing schools, you know, it's like, I wish there was some way to honor those people 
and I mean people, you know, I, I only did it for a small percentage of time. For them. I mean the people who did it, like did it for a long time, like they did. I wish we had a better way to honor them. And, and in so many ways, this incredible gazillion dollar apparatus we have to support schools does such a poor job of honoring those people. And, I, and I'm left wondering why. Well, along those lines, we should have some of those people on this particular show, because that's what I care about most are the people that are showing up to do really hard work in places where it's really, really needed. And what the United States wants are more people like that. Now, let's move on. We started the show at the start at the head. I was talking about how we're celebrating in this week the 95th birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., who was national paragon for nonviolent resistance, who drew upon the, the teachings of philosophers, Christian philosophers, global philosophers, and people like Gandhi and others, and created something in the civil rights movement that had not existed, which was a new consciousness and, and a heart and a mind for moving, moving forward without all of the militancy, but moving forward with good strategies for getting people to care. And this week, many people are going to give speeches about Dr. King. Many people are going to put things on their social media. They're going to retweet and, you know, post, and it's going to be all pretty performative and facile, and no one's going to dig deep. The issue that we're talking about today, feeding young people in schools, is an issue that I can't even imagine that we have to talk about. Uh, and I'll tell you why quickly, one way that is personal to me. My, my oldest son, uh, I can remember when he was probably in fourth or fifth grade. Uh, and, and, you know, people don't know all my history and my story. Like, you know, <laughs> I was far from the silver, silver spoon situation. But I can remember that we were behind on his on the payments for his lunch. And it wasn't by a lot. It was probably like about $16 or so. And this was in my paycheck to paycheck time. And it wasn't even paycheck to paycheck. This was in my you get paid on Friday, but you run out of money on Tuesday era of my life. And uh, 16 dollars being behind. And for three days, I did not know this. They gave him a cheese sandwich, two slices of bread and a piece of cheese. And, uh, and I didn't know anything about it until he said something to me about it, like on the third day or something. The level of next level hatred and, and, and anger and whatever that swelled up in me was so crazy. I'm sure this, I'm not going to name the school district. I'm sure they didn't expect it was going to happen. And I'm sure they never want a guy like me ever to face a situation like that again in their lifetime. Um, and right now in that district, if you are behind, they don't do the cheese sandwich thing anymore. And I feel pretty proud of the fact that that came Good out of the level of nuclear behavior. And I was not an education activist at the time. I was a dad with a kid in a school who didn't understand school, didn't understand the rules and all of what they did. And that's probably why I got so freaked out and crazy about it, because I didn't know anything. Uh, about how schools work. Man, and that gives you a citizen steward. That's why I have a show today <laughs> in a lot of ways. That that and other stories, but that, that yes. Yeah, so, so. yeah, well, Chris, your your favorite sentence on the show, which is, we did a segment on this. <laughs> people can go back and listen to it, which is, we did a whole thing on school lunch, which I thought was really good because part of that conversation that I that I thought was really important is that, you know, Ricky, who who was on that segment with me, is you know, Gen Z came out of private school. I think it was news to her. I think a little bit about how this kind of stuff works, and also just the sheer quantity of of hunger that shows up on in school doorsteps. And I think this is part of the educating that's needed here. Is that there's this assumption out there that, oh, well, I, everybody gets food. Like, this is just a matter of trying to collect the money. But I don't think people realize that there, there are so many kids, I saw it firsthand as a principal, who show up and 
if they didn't get a meal at school, you can't count on them getting a meal for many reasons, right? It could be the parents are, are extremely poor. It could be that the state, like some of the states we're about to talk about, does a poor job in general food assistance. It could be that there's issues of substance abuse with the family where you can't count on the money making it to the kids. Like there's just a lot of things that can happen with those kids. There could be other siblings going on. The parents could work two jobs. And, you know, there's an area of America economics that I don't think people know about where it's like you make too much to get assistance and help, but you make too little to make sure that between Wednesday and Friday when you get paid that you haven't run out of everything that yes, you need, right? For there's, sure. There's this working class area of life where if it wasn't in my life, in my own story, if it wasn't for the kindness of neighbors and others, right? Like, you know, we had downstairs neighbors who would make sure, like for sure, if we ran out of anything, we knew that we had somebody we could tap into. But that that Wednesday to Friday problem, that just falling short of your paycheck, that just being able to pay for the electricity, the gas in your car, your car insurance, your health insurance and all that stuff, and then being left with nothing on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, and then having your kid come home from school with the list of things that they need in a day that they didn't tell you about, like a calculator or, you know, some something, you know, that costs money. I don't have that experience anymore. So it'd be easy for me to forget that, except for it's burned in me like a tattoo because it was such a depressing way of living. So when I encounter people who don't have any empathy for the fact that nearly 10 million children won't get summer food this year because the benefits that states can get out of the federal program are not going to be there for them because there are governors who are playing politics with whether or not they want to take the federal money to be able to provide summer meals to students who desperately need it, right? Like the summer, if you depend on school for one or two of your meals during the day, and many kids get both their breakfast and their lunch there, and then summer comes, I can remember this, like we could have a whole nother show on what the hell do you do with your kids in the summer anyways, too, if you have to work and keep working, right? Like that costs yeah. money. But the food part is important. I have some data points on this, but go ahead, Robbie, jump. Oh, I was just going to explain to our audience, this is what you're referring to is the summer EBT program, which provides families who receive free and reduced lunch during the school year with additional assistance in their electronic benefit transfer cards that could be used to purchase groceries in the store for each eligible child uh, families receive $40 per month. So we're not talking about a ton, but it could make a huge difference for a total of $120. So this is additional assistance. 35 states, all five U.S. territories and four tribes are participating, but a number of states have refused this money. Mississippi, uh, has refused this, which we can come back to. Alabama, Alaska, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Louisiana, Nebraska, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, Vermont, interestingly, and Wyoming. And the reasons given, like the one given by Governor Tate Reeves in Mississippi, is they don't want to expand the welfare state, even though they're getting this assistance mostly from the federal government. This is, there's some administrative cost on the state, but it, if these were kids that you in any way had empathy for, you'd be like, that. that's a bargain. This is, by the way, Mississippi, the same state that refused Medicaid expansion. What is so, and the reason I start with Dr. King is there is a lack of empathy, period, but our politics have never been, I think, in my, my mind, more mean-spirited. I think that there was a time where you wouldn't even have to talk about whether or not we should be feeding kids and whether or not like we should concentrate on this. But but this is the mean spirited part. Someone like Tate will say that they're not into welfare. I heard one other governor say, I just don't believe in welfare. He, he's in a state where many of his constituents and the people that work with him are getting federal aid uh, in terms of agricultural assistance and business assistance and corporate assistance in many other ways. He's not for 
uh, welfare for for young people and the poor and people who need it. He's for welfare for his major corporate f- farmers and donors because uh, every break that they can get and every kind of federal kind of boost that they can get to their businesses, those same governors are all for that. They're just not for feeding kids. Um, the federal government launched a permanent summer uh, program giving low-income families $120 per school-aged child to buy their own food, $120 per student in 2024. Now, Dr. King, years ago, one of Dr. King's first sermons uh, that became kind of notable for him was a letter from, it it was addressing Christians at the time, and it was a supposed letter from Paul to the church and Christians. Uh, It was a riff on that. And it was about the technological advances in the United States that were not actually meaning social progress and human progress, meaning there was a boom. The economy was starting to boom. Technology was booming. There was all this stuff coming down the pipe, technologically speaking, and there was still poverty. There were still a lot of people who just, there was deep poverty. Poverty in some of these deep, same deep states. And that was his his first issue. Right. And it was still an issue on the day that he died was poverty and poor people. So anyways, that's a big setup to say, um, Ravi, you're a political person. You understand politics. First of all, is this really a winner for any of those governors and for anybody like who who is this for? Who is this pushback against? Who is this for? Yeah. Well, I think like Governor Reeves is a good example, right? He just won reelection in a race that people were hoping would buck the trend of sort of safe Republican races in, in Mississippi. And it wasn't as close as a lot of people wanted. This is a guy who has overlapped with the theft of welfare funds to build a volleyball facility. He is a person who refused Medicaid expansion. And he now is a person who is refusing additional assistance to expand food for children. And you ask yourself, well, what, what's the politics of this? I think it, before the politics come into play, it's an, it's an empathy gap. Most of these are poor black children. And this, the politics in Mississippi don't reward. If all you care about is, is who's going to help you get elected, if you're a Republican in Mississippi, you're baking in that you're not going to get any of the black vote, especially given all the actions I talked about that happened before this. So he's like, I'm not going to get these votes anyway. So then you'll say, well, if it's a wash, you kind of just, even if you're heartless, you don't want the the trouble. You're just going to like expand, take the free resources. But there is a, there's a combination, I think of cruelty politics where there's a, there's almost a fetishization of, of depriving, I think, certain communities of resources because they're quote unquote progressive, like a sort of own the libs type of thing, which is part of this. It's almost like trolling with the alt, with the highest possible consequences, combined with a, the talking point that if if you can say, I cut welfare programs and I cut the budget by X, then that's a talking point that if you want to go into national politics that you somehow want in your back pocket as if Tate has that much of a future in national politics. I mean, I guess at best he can count on the Mississippi Senate seat, but I can't see him going beyond that. That's my best guess, but it's hard to get in the head of people who are this, who lack empathy at, at such a staggering rate. Actually, I think um, 
<laughs> this is not going to surprise you. But yeah, it is. Uh, America's always had a problem with empathy for poor black people and black people, period, and non-white people, period. And this is not something you can get away with if you thought that the victims were actually a large group of white people. There's no governor, especially white uh, Republican governor in the United States anywhere that could get away with any of these type of attacks. And they never have been able to if the presumed victims are considered to be poor white people. Um, as a matter of fact, the reversal, what has worked for poor black people oftentimes is when it does affect poor white people. Like that's the time where it becomes like, it's easy to say, yeah, I don't want those people getting something in, but if you're getting it yourself, it, it, it's a little bit. If you just were farm assistance, I don't even have to Google it. I'm yeah. sure he's accepted this kind of assistance. These are farm assistance. You know, this is a state where you could point a straight line from the current land holding to let's say some not so nice history. The, do you think he would refuse that welfare for people who don't really need it? Of course he would. I mean, it, it, first of all, he says in public that he's against the welfare state. And that's the reason for, for jumping out of this. We know that if you talk about welfare in the United States, you're really talking about black people when you're talking about hostility towards it. You have never been talking about the corporate farmers. You've never been talking about Tyson Foods. You've never been talking about like, you know, the rich buddies. You've always been talking about the welfare queen as uh, Ronald Reagan introduced it years ago, introduced it in the 80s. Ronald Reagan uh, introduced this concept. It's stuck in the minds of people uh, and it has made it very easy to attack programs that help poor people, because if the picture of an undeserving black person comes up in your mind, then it has an effect. So I'm sure that with him, uh, he's not going to touch the fact that states like his are, are takers, not makers. Red states are the biggest takers of all forms of. So, so a state like yours, New York, for all the ripping on it that you could possibly do, puts more back into the United States than it gets. But red states actually take more than they actually get. They are the poverty cases of the United States. Red states literally are the welfare queens uh, of the federal government in the United States, but they never talk about that. You, you, you're against the welfare state, sir. You're Mississippi. <laughs> Let me remind you of what your name is. You are Mississippi. Knock it off. Just stop it. But, you know, let's let's put a fine point on this because you mentioned this. Uh, so this is from a story this year, August, uh, from last year, August 10th, 2023. Hall of Fame quarterback Brett Favre is in hot water for his connection in the Mississippi welfare scandal involving the misappropriation of roughly $77 million in state funds. Favre, who has not been criminally charged, has denied knowing that the money he received for projects was welfare money. Court fi filings, text messages, and tax records show the complexity of the situation. You go on and you read this. Favre was involved in a situation where he's buddies with the governor. The governor allocated some money for him to be able to create a, uh, a sports facility for his daughter's school, right? The school that Favre's daughter attended. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to go too deep into that because that's a side story. But this was this all came out of TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program. And TANF, actually the program that is the block grant that states get to be able to give money uh, to programs that help the poor, is really a cash cow for many states. It's a slush fund in some ways. You could do whatever you want. So before TANF, it was called AFDC, and that program had the majority of the money that came into the state went to the people who need it. Since Clinton signed the TANF legislation in 96, 1996, the big change was that states could use that money any, any way they wanted, and there's estimates as high as 80% of it doesn't make it to the intended people that should benefit from it. This is not like a welfare 
state type of issue. This is a scandal and corruption type of issue, and it's really nasty, dirty education politics. I'm going to ask you a question, Robbie, and you're not going to answer it, but I'm going to say, it. I'm going to ask you anyways, how, man, this is such a, a, a bad question to ask, but I still have to ask it. If this is the, the hallmark of Republican politics, if this has become the top of the key for them, this has become the three-point shot for them, how can they be good people? If this is the, this is the best, this is the best of what you're known for right now, you and I, and you especially, <laughs> have beat up on Democrats and the left and leftists and people who go too far on the left and the wokes and the overwokes on their worst day. They're not trying to take food out of the mouths of young people and kids on their worst day. That is never what they're attempting to. Do. Yeah, I think, as I've mentioned many times, I do beat up on Republicans a ton. I have a whole podcast about it. It's the biggest podcast I have, and I never beat up on Democrats on that podcast. I'm going to have to listen to that podcast. <laughs> Two is I want to mention that there are Republican governors who have bucked this trend. Obviously, by the list I just gave, uh, there is a huge list of Republicans who have it. And yeah, I mean, I could go through... I do think that there are examples of, of Democrats depriving needy communities of what they need, whether it's on the educational front, the housing front, or even the food front. But this is inexcusable. You mean, and when you say that, do you mean like taking money out of those things? You have examples of Democrats wanting to take money out of those. I think the way Democrats do it is a little bit different, right? So they'll allow bloated programs to pull from the public coffers that would otherwise be used to help poor people. This happens in New York all the time. Like why it costs a gazillion dollars to build a mile of subway that goes to all the special interests and that's money. And at the same time that we're cutting schools, right? School funding and we're cutting, you know, public housing assistance, you know, while there's rat infestations and public housing, et cetera. Like that's the kind of, that's the sin that Democrats have. So it's a couple steps removed from pulling it right out of the mouths of poor people. But to me, the impact is really bad as well. All I have to say is this is inexcusable. And I know Tate personally, and I think he's been a horrible governor. And I think he's a disappointment. Um, and he's somebody I worked with originally when I went to Mississippi to pass legislation. Uh, I just think he's a disgrace. And I know a lot of Republicans in Mississippi that think he's a disgrace and a lot of people who hoped that he would have lost this past election. And so, you know, he won because this is the polarization that we we live with today, right? Like they, they enough people fear the libs enough to be able to cut off their own lifelines. You know, Republican Ben Allen, a buddy of mine who is a, was a Republican politician from Jackson, Mississippi, back when they had Republicans on the city council, told me that Mississippi would be a third world country if not for federal assistance. And this is true. They had always they had Dad Cochran, one of the most powerful senators in the US Senate. They had Trent Lott, the Senate majority leader, and they were able to pull in resource after resource after resource. Now we've got the day where they're refusing those resources when they're they go to certain populations. It's a disgrace. It they're they're I love Mississippi and, and we'll talk about it in a second in this next time. It's probably a good transition, I guess. But um I love Mississippi, but it is horrible leadership. Point blank, like terrible leadership. And I don't know what the answer is. Like it's it's a it's a state that's crumbling. It, 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 the federal assistance was really keeping it on life support, and when you cut off that life support, I just don't know what to happen. And and I think another example of this is what we were going to talk about, which is 
there's a sort of an epidemic of school closures happening across the country because of declining enrollment. And this is as severe in the Jackson Public School District in Jackson, Mississippi, the state capital, as anywhere else. Uh, not long ago, a couple of weeks ago, the school board in Jackson voted 5-1 uh, to close 13 school buildings. This is in a city that had only 55 school closings. So they closed 13 of 55 schools. Enrollment has dropped significantly in 2015, 2016, which is the year I left. Jackson had, uh, or the year before I left, Jackson had 27,267 students. They now have 18,773. That is a massive drop. And so it's a crisis. It's a true crisis. Now it's it's complicated crisis, but it's a crisis. We'll say more about that. I mean, I've always thought that number one, school closures is a dog of an issue, having been on an urban school board and having went through multiple rounds of having to sell the public on the idea that closing schools was somehow going to do something good for them. First of all, I think the trick is telling people that you're not just like talking, leading with we're closing the schools actually is not the the lead. The lead is what, what you're going to get. <laughs> what are you going to get if we do this, I think, is the way. And and for many people, they don't have an answer to that. We just need to close this. Too. I'd love to hear your theory about it, like in Mississippi, but just for the public and for people listening to this. When you talk about school closures, there's usually an economic situation that you're facing. Many school districts have a hole in their budget. They have a massive hole in their budget. And the thing that you never hear talked about in the news when we talk about school closings is a little thing called underutilization. So you have whole schools in many districts in the country that are built for 1,600 kids that only have 500 kids. You have schools that are built for 500 kids that have, you know, 120. And that is not a problem. That That is a problem if you keep those schools open. That is an equity problem because in those schools, think about this, think about the math of this. If you have a school that's built for 1,600 and you only have five or 600 kids in that, what you are paying for those kids to get educated in that building is almost double what it would be if you put them in another building where the schools were full. They are paying more for their principal. They're paying more for their staff. They're, they're paying more for everything. And when I say they are paying for, the per pupil income that you get for each of those students is dwindled by you putting them in half full schools. So I know it's very emotional to close a school. When you do it, many people from the community show up to say, I went here and this is the best thing ever and the community needs this and whatever. And it's very hard to explain to them the math when that happens. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic story. I mean, the city itself is losing population. It's coincided with a huge increase in crime, a water crisis, an infrastructure crisis. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to Jackson, but driving the roads there, like I've been in back roads you know, when I was in India and, and I was, you know, in the back roads of India, they were more well-maintained in rural villages like the one my dad grew up in than the state capital in Mississippi. Like, so it's, it's a mess. And it's not a mess with one father. I actually think there's local problems with leadership and there are state problems of leadership. There probably are national problems of leadership too, but definitely state and 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 um, and local and they blame each other and it's a, like a classic blame game, but there, I could talk forever about the problems that each own. And then there's the historical issues of the hollowing out of cities throughout the South and, and, you know, how integration contributed to the creation of school districts outside of Jackson that pulled people out of the city and how major economic activity followed to places like Ridgeland, Mississippi, huge issues. And the city 
has to deal with what it, you know, it, the reality in front of it. Like there are things I would do if you gave me a pen, would I, you know, you gave me a pen, I would combine Ridgeland and Flowood and some of these other places into one district. I would force them to in the way that in some cases people have tried to do around Memphis, for example, but that's not happening. So the thing is, what do you do? You, you have to do the best you can for kids and maintaining a bunch of empty buildings or 20%, 30%, 40% occupancy buildings is not in the interest of children. Like you need to consolidate them together so that you can maintain those buildings to the best of your ability and create staffing profiles that make sense. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a tough reality. It's why I got five one to one vote and it was supported by the the uh, head of the school system. It's because there's just no, you have to deal with the reality in front of you. There is a, an interesting question, which we should touch on, which is the role that charters can and should play in this, because I started the first charter school in Mississippi, and we now have, I think, four in the city of Mississippi um, that have been started during this period of time, by and large, that they've been closing other schools. And I have a, a lot to say about what obligation the charters sector has here. Let me read you some data here, uh, which I know you're familiar with. These are the letter grades for charter schools in the city of Jackson in 2023. Ambitious Prep Charter School, C. Joel Smiley Collegiate Prep Charter School, F. Midtown Public Charter School, F. Reimagined Prep Charter School, D. Smiley Prep Charter School, D. So right now I'm looking at 2022, Smilo Prep went from a C to a D. Reimagine Prep uh, Charter School went from a C to a D. Uh, Midtown went from a D to an F. Legacy went from a D to an F. Collegiate Charter School went from a B to an F. Talk about a drop and a drop off. Uh, and there's none of these that went from any grade up, <laughs> like going upward. Here, here's, I don't know how many students this particular group of schools serve in the city. I do think that the way that I would look at it is the city has a reckoning. The state has a reckoning that they have to have and not any one group of these schools is going to be held harmless. All of these schools have a reckoning to be had. Jackson losing 8,500 uh, students is its own problem. That's its own problem. That's not connected to charter schools, has nothing to do with charters. That has to do with their leadership. They own it. They broke it. They own it. They should have to be on the hook for providing something new for the public. And it will be a test of their mettle. It'll be a test of their mettle. I was on a school board. If I was on a school board right now in that city, I would be doing more than thinking about how we close schools. I would be thinking about what we provide for students and how we get them students something. As somebody who has went through multiple rounds of having to close schools, I can tell you I ex exactly know what happens in the back rooms uh, when people are talking about that. And there are always the people who are, uh, we just got to cut. We just got to get rid of, we got to move things around. We got to, you know, move teachers from here to there. And that's its own part of the work. There's fewer people in there who are saying, yeah, but from this point forward, we're going to start a new program or this, what they're going to actually give the public. That's a test of your, your leadership. What you're pointing out is a whole nother issue, which is what is the charter, what is the chartering group going to do in those cities? Because you're pointing out that they've got as big a problem as anybody else that they need to fix. But here's the thing. One year of bad results, that's not a reason to shut a school down. We, we are on record talking about that previously. I'm just telling you right now, I, I, I have eyes and ears. I know everybody in the state. Like I know the people on the education committee. I know the people who are in the sport communities. I know the people in the network. I know the reporters. I talked to all of them and I tried to get answers from the network itself. And it's just bad sign. Anybody here is listening who has any responsibility in Mississippi, I'm telling you right now, 
bad signs. I have no dog in the sun. I'm not on the board anymore. I'm just somebody who roots for these schools and, and has, I don't bullshit. You know, people in the audience will know this. Like as much as I want, like if my ego is all over this, right, I should want it all to be great. I should be here bullshitting you about how awesome it is. I'm telling you right now that unless the support groups at the board, the leadership in Nashville, which is too distant from this over public schools, unless they step in here and do something and be urgent, this is going to go south and it's going to be really bad for the movement as a whole. And more importantly, it's going to be really bad for the kids and families who depend on these schools. You know, I'll, I'll say, um, and we should wrap here soon, but I'll say this. Uh, you keep mentioning the national players and actors, the people who support these schools and the growth of charters national funders and others. I believe that there was a change in those national funders attitude about what reform is and what it was meant to do for many years. I think for many years, the idea was it was meant to provide better outcomes. Outcomes was the thing. Like outcomes mattered. It was everything. Uh, I think at some point, many people who uh, were funding that were not seeing fast enough results with the outcomes or wide enough, broad enough outcomes. So they shifted to just change for change sake, uh, just different schools for different schools sake. Right. I don't think anybody in Jackson actually wanted a sector to come in and provide more DNF schools to just so you so that you could have a choice of DNF schools. Reform people who call themselves reformers would have never been for that five years ago, 10 years ago. Data assessment, accountability, outcomes, all of those things were pointed at the fact that kids should be better off for whatever it is that you're investing in. I think that the hippies won over. The conservative hippies who are just, and, and the liberal hippies of, hey, just let a thousand flowers bloom and choice just for choice sake. And let's just open up a whole bunch of schools with no kind of accountability for whether or not they do well or not. Hey, I mean, the regular system's not doing so great. So why don't, you know, so why should we be on the hook for not? You should be on the hook because you have been selling forever that the reason for getting a charter is to allow people to try new things to get better results. 100%. You're good on that first part. Get charters. You're bad on the so that they could get better results part. The whole accountability mechanism of a charter, how chartering started, was autonomy for accountability. Autonomy for accountability. You get to get out of all of the bureaucratic rules that you say are holding you back from doing great things for kids. And to pay for that, you're held accountable for results. Mississippi, I think, is not, we can't just beat up on Mississippi. Mississippi's not the only place where we have this particular issue. And I do think that there needs to be just as regular district traditional schools need to have a reckoning with themselves about what they do next and do better. I think the people who've been pushing charters and pushing reform for all these years need to find their accountability Jesus and get back to it real quick or else you are just becoming the second version of the traditional system. Congratulations. You spent 25 years and hundreds of million dollars to become the thing that you are fighting against. Stop. Yeah. I, by the way, I, what you said is the most important thing said on this entire podcast, because it ties everything together that we talked about with the exception of the, the heartless grifting Republican leadership, like everything else ties that together. We talk about Linda Brown. We talk about the changes of these organizations. We talk about what's happening down in Mississippi. We talk about the change in the funder attitudes, the out of touchness, like it all comes back to this sense, this period of time where we all, well, not we, but the sort of charter movement took its eye off the ball from results uh, and it got squishy and it got a little, it, it got weak. And during that period of time, mediocrity and failure seeped in. And the question is for the people listening who make these decisions is, do you have the backbone and the energy and the fortitude to turn things around? 
because it's going to take, it always takes more energy to fix something heading in the wrong direction than it is to maintain it when it's heading in the right one. And I think that's the question for people is, can you do it? I hope you can. My, my feeling about Mississippi is just pause the growth and get it right. You know, like let's, there's a few, what they did right is they didn't charter a lot of schools over the years. There's only a few in the whole state. Pause it. There's a huge investment in the state right now from outside players. Let's, instead of using that money to push these organizations who are already kind of struggling, instead of pushing them to grow more schools, let's actually just make these schools excellent. And that will be the best thing you could do for future growth and for the kids in Mississippi. And I've been on the record here. I, and I know a lot of other people would be at the table in a heartbeat if the leadership was willing to be transparent and open. I would go down there for free and I would talk down, I'd talk to anybody. I would lead workshops. I'd help people develop plans. I would help raise more money for the effort if it was needed, which is, doesn't seem to be the issue, but you know, it's like the, it's like the joke, like how many psychiatrists does it take to score on a light bulb? One, but the light bulb has to want to change, you know? <laughs> uh, so that's, that's the key here. Yeah. Oh God, that's a, dun, dun. that's a dad joke. That that is dangerously right. close to I'm a dad really, joke. I love the state of Mississippi. I love those teachers. Shout out to Trisandria Hubbard and her team and the rest of the people down there. I love Angela Bass, who runs the region in Mississippi with very little support from the network. She wouldn't say that, but I'm saying that. I love Mississippi First, who's run by Rachel Cantor, who has been doing God's work with almost no staff, uh, and recently has gotten a big grant to expand the work that she's doing. She's amazing. And the more autonomy she has, the better. Some some of my favorite educators in the world are down there. I just think they need better leadership above them. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate this discussion today. I think for people listening, this is going to be a year where we need to keep the main issues, the main issue up and center in front. And I actually am a lifelong kind of fighter for child justice. I believe that children do not get justice in our policies. I think that we have a real problem with we're starting to have more end of life and old people uh, focuses to all of our policy and we're leaving kids behind in so many ways. One of those ways is that we're just not taking care of their basic needs um, because we're making them pawns of larger political debates. In a civilized society, every child should eat. Every child should have health care. Every child should should have what they need to thrive and become the people that they're supposed to be. Education is one big part of that, too. And the people on the right and the left, we could write whole blog posts about what the left gets wrong about education and what the right gets wrong about education. They both there's a bipartisan missing of the point for both groups. And this year, I think that's going to be so on, as the kids used to say, on fleek. Uh, that's going to be like such a, a, a issue this year um, of the not getting the point on the left and the right, the Republicans and the Democrats, because they don't care enough to actually get the details right for kids and for education. So we're going to keep having shows like this, and we're going to keep talking about the inside baseball part of it and the outside baseball part of it. And just reminding you as listeners that you're not powerless. You can actually, every time you meet a candidate for mayor, you can ask them, tell me what's your, your child policy. Uh, what are you going to do for the kids of city X? What are you going to so nobody running for any office anywhere should ever ask you for your vote without you asking them, what is their comprehensive, of plan for making sure that young people thrive. Um, whether that's a city-based person, a city council member uh, asking for your vote, a, a school board member, a mayor, all the way up to your state reps, senators, others. Ask all of them that simple question. What are you going to do for kids? What is your uh, detailed, comprehensive policy? 
for young people. This has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. We always want it to be better. So two things. We definitely always want to hear from you. So send us email and tell me why I'm right and Robbie's wrong. And, you know, the other thing that we need you to do is leave a review. If you listen to it on Apple Podcasts, if you listen to the show on Spotify, wherever you listen to the show, leave us a rating and a review so that we know how we're doing. We appreciate it. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the branches podcast at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show.